This is episode 126 of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, and today's guest is Kelsey Day. She is an SLP with seven years of experience in the acute care setting. She received her master's degree from Northwestern University, where she was trained in dysphagia diagnostics and video fluoroscopy with Dr. Jerry Logeman. Kelsey now serves as the lead SLP at California Hospital Medical Center, a level two trauma center and primary stroke center in downtown LA, where she supervises and mentors a team of nine SLPs. She specializes in dysphagia care for the critically ill, multi-trauma, and tracheostomy ventilator-dependent populations. Kelsey launched the FEES program at her hospital to facilitate early swallow intervention for the mechanically ventilated population. She currently serves as a mentor for the Medical SLP Collective and guest lectures at California State University, Fullerton. Now, I hope you guys love this episode. This actually stemmed from a talk that Karen Scheffler and I did at ASHA, not last year, but the year before, um, all about what we had coined or Karen had coined the platinum standard. And, you know, I know I get a lot of messages from people that, you know, I I, I get a a lot of messages from people that aren't very happy with how I say that we need to be advocating for more instrumentals and it's just not possible in their facility. And I can assure you that it is. Um, There's so many people, I've gotten so much feedback. I've gotten so many messages from people that have thanked me for this podcast because they've been able to advocate for instrumentation and we're going to crank it up a notch here. So This episode is not about advocating for instrumentation, but advocating for both kinds of instrumentation. So advocating for both fees and video fluoroscopy. Um, We all know know there's pros and cons to both, and there's some things that you just can't see with one or the other. And obviously, I'm a huge proponent for fees because I never had good access to video fluoroscopy. So um, Kelsey paints an amazing picture of what it is like to be in a hospital where you do have access to both. And I think that is something that we all should be striving for, is having access to both for our patients. Um, so I hope you guys really enjoy this episode, and I hope it inspires you to keep advocating for what you need for your patients. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, And I know firsthand how much confusing and conflicting information there is out there about how we assess and treat swallowing disorders. This podcast is all about bringing everyone together, getting on the same page, being open to new ideas, and using evidence-based treatment strategies for our patients with dysphagia. So let's get into it. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Hello, Kelsey. Hi, Teresa. Thanks for having me back. Thank you so much for coming back. So fun. We're such speech nerds. We just realized it might have been exactly a year to the day since you last recorded an episode here. Yes, it feels like fate. Yes. it. (laughs) Yes, that's so exciting. Oh, all right. So everybody doesn't know, tell them who you are. Okay, so my name is Kelsey Day. I'm a speech pathologist in the acute care setting. I've been in acute care for about seven years now. I'm the lead speech pathologist at California Hospital Medical Center, which is a trauma center and stroke center in downtown LA. So I kind of focus on critically ill, multi-trauma, and tracheostomy, ventilator-dependent patients. I love all things dysphagia. I love mentoring and teaching. I do a lot of that on the side. So Awesome. Wonderful. Okay. So what are we going to cover today? 
So I want to talk about using both video fluoroscopy and endoscopy as complementary exams for the same patient. Awesome. I love it. So I feel like just when we're getting started off, I think that I'm going to get a lot of backlash from people being like, I just got access to video swallows, or I just got access to these. And now you're telling me I need both for the same patient? Yep. But yep, that's what I'm here to say. Yep. (laughs) Okay. I love it. I love it. Don't settle, people. Don't settle. Don't settle. So I think before we talk about how to use both studies for the same patient and why we do these things and in what order we do them and when we do them, we need to kind of just step back and look again at just the advantages and disadvantages of each. So I want to start off by talking about video fluoroscopy. So I think most of us have a good idea of what the advantages are, but just to kind of recap, I think the biggest advantage of video fluoroscopy is just the direct view that we have of the oral phase of the swallow. And also the direct view we have of the esophagus. We can very easily complete an esophageal screening in either the lateral or AP views, which is very useful. We can detect very specific anatomic abnormalities so like Achillean Jameson diverticulum or Zanker's diverticulum, there are so many, like the CP bar, anterior cervical osteophytes, the list kind of goes on about things that we can detect. Um, and I think that's pretty important, not that we're diagnosing those structural abnormalities, but frequently they're impacting our patient's follow function, and we need to work with radiologists and with the physicians to kind of collaborate there. And then I love that video fluoroscopy has been more standardized through MBSIMP, something our field needs, and hopefully that will happen for fees too. Yes, very much so. Yeah. And then the disadvantages for video fluoroscopy. I think the biggest one that people are most concerned about is the radiation exposure. And by now we know there are studies on how much radiation is actually involved in a modified barium swallow study or a video swallow study. And I what I found is an article that cited the radiation dose for an average video swallow study for adults is, let me get our number here, 0.27 millisieverts. So just in perspective, like I don't know what that number means, and I think most people wouldn't know what that means. So in perspective, that's less than the amount of radiation that's emitted from your own body within a year. And it's about one month of living in the United States, just the natural background radiation that there is. And it's a little bit more than a chest x-ray, but less than a mammogram. So I think that when people use concerns about radiation exposure as an argument against doing a video swallow study, we just need to step back and say, really, what are the risks and benefits here? Because it's a little bit more radiation than a chest x-ray, but we're talking about potential severe mortality or or severe mortality, severe morbidity and mortality from dysphagia. So I think that the the benefits certainly outweigh that, but it is a consideration. And then we know that with video swallows, we cannot directly view the larynx or vocal fold mobility in the same way that we can with feet. So we can't visualize structural changes like laryngeal edema, erythema, stenosis, granulomas or vocal fold dysfunction. And then I think that 
see or video swallows are just difficult to perform for a lot of patients who have positioning restrictions. So in acute care, that's something that I encounter a lot. Patients who are in cervical braces or their head of bed is not allowed to be elevated over a certain degree because of a recent surgery. So video swallows can be difficult to perform for those, those patients. And then we all know it's really tough just to coordinate with radiology departments, with transport, with the radiologists themselves, with the rad techs. So that can, that can be complicated. All right. And then kind of to do the same for fees. So the advantages of fees, I mean, primarily, I love that you first directly assess the secretion management, even in patients with severe dysfunction, so they can be drooling, barely swallowing their secretions, coughing on everything, but these patients still need therapy. We still need to find out what is the pathophysiology under all of that dysphagia, no matter how severe it is, so we can start treatment. So I love that we can get in there really early and evaluate what the problems are and then start therapy really early for these patients. We can directly look at the laryngeal structure and abnormalities in the way that we can't on video swallow. We can observe vocal fold mobility, make inferences about laryngeal nerve integrity. We can detect, you know, this is unusual, I think. We can detect really subtle asymmetry in like velar elevation. So even on a video swallow, you might see, oh, there's no nasal penetration. It looks like the velum's functioning well in patients, let's say post-stroke. On fees, you might be able, with just when you're passing the scope over the velum, to evaluate the velar elevation and see more subtle asymmetry there. So that's a cool use of fees. And then, it, obviously, it's just portable and really easy to do at the patient's bedside, especially for patients who are ventilator-dependent or dependent on high-flow nasal cannula or have all of those unique braces or positioning restrictions. And then... I mean, I'm talking all about how great fees is. It does have its downsides too. So we have to make a lot of inferences about the oral phase of the swallow. We have to make inferences about certain aspects of the pharyngeal swallow. So we don't really see the base of tongue retraction or the hyolaryngeal excursion or UES relaxation. Most of the time you just make an inference, which is largely accurate, but still an inference about those, about that physiology. And then you can't detect, you know, the structural abnormalities I named earlier, like a Zanker's diverticulum, a cricopharyngeal bar. You can't specifically say, is that bulge from the posterior pharyngeal wall an osteophyte or is it edema? You can't really say those things. And you know, so I think I think that about covers disadvantages for fees. Anything else you'd throw in there, Teresa? I don't think so. No, you love these. <laughs> I, I do, I do, and and uh, you know, like I love hearing your, I love hearing your non-biased opinion of it. I mean, we all know mine is biased, and it's only because that's what I eat, sleep, and breathe. Only because I don't have access to video porosity. So, I love, I love hearing people that actually do have access to both when they would use one versus the other, and why, and how they are complementary. So, right, yeah, I think it's so important that you know, eventually our field moves somewhere where every single clinician who's practicing in dysphagia has access to both instrumental exams whenever they deem it's necessary. Yeah. Awesome. So got a long way to go to get there. We're trying to get one study in most facilities, but yeah. uh, I think we can get there. Yes. Yes. Awesome. All right. Okay. So 
Now, the next thing I wanted to talk about, so it's a term that you coined with Karen Scheffler at ASHA 2018, and I am so, so sad that I was not there, and I missed this ASHA, and this is one of maybe the biggest regrets of my life. Um, <laughs> do you, so I bet you know what term I'm talking about. Yes. You, wanna, you, you just be honest. No, go ahead. You do. Okay. <laughs> so, so we're talking about the platinum standard. So yeah. the platinum standard for dysphagia evaluation. Yes. So I think there's been a lot of debate in our field. Like, is video fluoroscopy the gold standard? Is endoscopy the gold standard? And just this kind of back and forth between clinicians. No, this is better or that's better. And I just love that now we can say, wait a minute, they both have advantages and disadvantages. And together, for many patients, we can use them as this new platinum standard. And you know, not every single patient needs both, but there are patients who do. I think that what I understand, and now, so I had to do a lot of reading about your guys' presentation and things that Karen Scheffler has you know, published since then about kind of what you guys meant by that term. But from my understanding is that it's a dysphagia evaluation that's customized for every patient through critical thinking. So just thinking, exactly, thinking about what is the possible or probable etiology of the dysphagia for my patient and which exam would best evaluate that. So obviously we say all the time, we don't have x-ray vision, but we can still form educated, thoughtful hypotheses about what could be going on behind this dysphagia through chart review, through interviews, through bedside swallow exams, and then choose the most appropriate study for that. And then the study that we pick first doesn't have to be the last study. So the first study, whether that's video swallow or fees, can just be a starting point for leading us in the right direction. What else do we need to get a whole picture of this patient's swallow function? So in general, I mean, I do this platinum standard without before I even knew the term for it, but I do this a lot at my facility, both studies for the same patient, because when I'm evaluating a patient for dysphagia, I always have a question in my mind. You should always be trying to answer that clinical question. So what is the function of this patient's UES? It seems like this patient, this patient had a medullary stroke. I know in a medullary stroke, there might be severe cricopharyngeal dysfunction. I really want to look at this dysfunction well, so maybe I'll start with video fluoroscopy. I can better see that, right? Versus a patient who comes in and they report for months and months, they've been having progressive voice changes and dysphagia symptoms, and they've got this longstanding smoking history. And I say, you know, maybe there's a laryngeal pathology and a better starting point would be these. So, I think that we need to think really critically about the questions we have about our patient's swallow function and then choose the starting point from there. And it might just and it might not end with video swallow and feeds. It might also need ENT consult, GI consult, neurology consult, all of that. I love it. Great. Whew. Okay. You know, I think we kind of went over both exams, why we want to do both for some of some patients. And then I do want to talk a little bit about the special populations, just really unique populations who, generally speaking, I think benefit from both studies together. So the first population who 
I work a lot with is spinal cord injury. And a lot of patients with spinal cord injury undergo like an anterior cervical decompression infusion or ACDF. And Teresa, we've talked a lot about dysphagia post-ACDF. You've already done a podcast on that. So we know that that's you know, a really common cause of dysphagia, but why would this patient need both the video swallow and feed? Well, I really like video fluoroscopy for these patients because it just allows a great view of the prevertebral soft tissue edema. So any patient who's had surgery to the cervical spine, we generally expect some level of edema of the prevertebral soft tissue. And this can be very severe. It can you know, impact the pharyngeal swallow. It can even obstruct the pharynx and sometimes the larynx and cause some post-op respiratory failure. So it's something that's really serious that we need to consider like how it's impacting our patient's swallow function. So I love that in video swallow, you can see the, the thickness of the posterior pharyngeal wall of that soft tissue and kind of compare it between days. Because I've even had patients before who they look like they're getting better after ACDF. We've done a video swallow and they're managing a texture okay. And then they start to look worse a week post-op, two weeks post-op. And you say, wait a minute, this isn't the trajectory you're supposed to be following. Let's do a follow-up video swallow. And I found multiple cases where the prevertebral soft tissue edema was worse a week or two weeks post-op. And there's some research out there on like how much swelling there should be. And it's swelling generally in these patients peaks around days two and three. And then it should slowly decrease after that on day four. So that's really abnormal. And then in those cases, they had like retropharyngeal abscesses and complications related to the surgery that, you know, resulted in worsened dysphagia and for one of them like respiratory failure. So I think that our studies can be really useful there. And then definitely patients post-ACDF have impaired UES relaxation. Generally speaking, there's frequently hardware right there that's mechanically causing some level of obstruction. There's some edema. So it can mechanically obstruct the UES or even functionally from like a nerve injury intraoperatively. So I love how Video Swallow evaluates that. But Teresa, I bet you've done these for ACDF patients. Yes, yes, very much so. And what do you love about feeds for that population? Well, I think what's what's so maddening for me with ACDF is that most of the patients that I see had no idea that dysphagia would be a potential side effect to the ACDF surgery. So I hate when I get these patients and all of a sudden they're like, well, I had this surgery, but all of a sudden I'm having trouble swallowing. Um, and you know, like you said, you can, they, they might say it's gotten worse or it's gotten, you know, I, I thought it would be better by now. And so a lot of times, I mean, I just love getting in there and right away, you just see all the edema, you know, it's like, just as mm-hmm. soon as you get in there, your picture is worth a thousand words and you're like, well, this is why you can't swallow. So I just love it for the, basically the biofeedback we can give the patients too about, yep. Yeah. Well, you have <laughs> explanation yeah. their issue that they weren't aware of. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. that's sad because unfortunately I also encounter patients who are not expecting their dysphagia, um, yeah. which is a sad, sad 
sad situation. But like you said, fees. So I just, you know, went on and on about how you can see all the edema well on video swallow, which you can, because in the lateral view, you can literally measure the thickness of it. But in fees, you get a different perspective on how the edema is impacting the swallow function. So when you go in and scope these patients, you're looking with the scope down from above this like bird's eye view, and you can see the posterior pharyngeal wall literally caving in to the pharynx and the larynx even. And I've seen the edema like fully obstruct or obliterate a piriform sinus or even deviate in a retinoid cartilage to the side and impair the vocal fold mobility. You can kind of like see exactly what's going on in a way that you can't always see on video swallow. So they both can give you like a good view of edema from different directions. And then but so for fees, you can complete fees for the ACDF population in any position that they're allowed to be in. And a lot of these patients have, like we talked about earlier, cervical braces that make things difficult or positioning requirements. They can't be over 30 degrees, but your video swallow equipment can't, can't allow that. So it's, I, I think that for this population, spinal cord injury, ACDF, I vote for both studies. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> And then let's see, we can just go through some more populations. So the next one is a population that unfortunately I see very, very frequently in a trauma center and it's penetrating neck injury. So I feel really strongly about the management of these patients because they're so medically fragile that we really, really need to be skilled and know what we're doing here and understand why we're choosing each exam we're choosing. So by penetrating neck injury, just to clarify, I'm talking about like a gunshot wound or stab wound to the neck. And so obviously you can assume that this can cause some devastation to the actual structures of the pharynx and the larynx and even the esophagus. So we need to think really critically about not only what is the function, what's the physiology of the pharynx right now, but what is the structural integrity of it even? Is it even completely sealed? Is there a massive perforation in it that could leak anything that's put in this patient's mouth out into the surrounding space, like the mediastinum? So I think that it's dangerous for clinicians to be kind of practicing with these patients if they don't really think about this and speak with the trauma surgeons and work really closely with trauma surgery and with radiology. But so for the penetrating neck injury population, the most critical piece of information the trauma surgeons need from us and the radiologist is regarding the integrity of the pharynx. So the trauma surgeons are focused on early detection of pharyngeal perforations because of the possibility for severe complications like an abscess in the neck, erosion of major neck vessels, mediastinitis, or an inflammatory response in the, the space surrounding these structures that we're talking about. So in general, most of our physicians prefer a video swallow study first for a diagnostic tool um, for penetrating neck injury because of its ability to detect contrast extravasation. So like leakage of contrast into structures it's not supposed to be. So we're working closely with radiologists. We're looking at physiology at the same time the radiologists are looking at the structural integrity However, the structural integrity will be very obvious, usually, to an SLP. 
So typically for these patients, there is also a, a difference in the protocol on how we do a video swallow study in terms of the contrast media that we use. So in general, I think everyone assumes if you're doing a video swallow study, you use barium sulfate, right? Like that's the contrast we're just taught to use, but there are exceptions to when we use that. And so, you know, we always take orders from the from the surgeon and from the radiologist on to, regarding like which contrast media to use, but there are concerns about the effects of barium leaking into surrounding tissue and the potential for inflammatory responses or granulation from barium contrast leaking into spaces it shouldn't be. So generally speaking, many, many physicians or radiologists would recommend the use of a water-soluble contrast instead of barium for patients when there's a real suspicion for a pharyngeal or esophageal perforation or leak. So typically what we like to do is begin our exams with a water-soluble contrast if that's requested by the radiologist. And while we evaluate the physiology, the radiologist is simultaneously evaluating the structure and they both have their pros and cons. So, you know, the water-soluble contrast comes in a thin liquid. So what happens when you next need to evaluate pudding or a nectar-thick liquid, different textures? So generally speaking, we'll start with the water-soluble contrast just to make sure that the pharynx and or esophagus are intact and structurally sound. And then once we know that information, we can typically switch over to a barium sulfate. So that's kind of our protocol and what might be recommended for your patients with penetrating neck injury. So that's kind of the major benefit of doing a video swallow first, is that you can simultaneously assess those things. And then these patients, they just had a penetrating wound through their pharynx or larynx. Then we also want a better picture of the structure than what the video swallow can give us. So I typically, for all of these patients, will start with a video swallow to know about the integrity, get information on swallow physiology, and then immediately, if the pharynx is intact, perform a fees. So on the fees, we can get that bird's eye view of the pharynx and the larynx. We can see the often very severe erythema, edema throughout the pharynx and larynx right surrounding the wound. We can see vocal fold dysfunction if there was a nerve injury. But the thing is with fees, you cannot exclude the anything's leaking. You can't see, you're only seeing within the lumen of the pharynx. You can't see if anything's leaking outside of the pharynx unless there's a gaping wound, which usually they're very thin, narrow tracks. That's kind of why I would do both for penetrating neck injury. So you say immediately, is that like the same day? Yeah, typically. So if my patient is admitted with a gunshot wound through the, the pharynx and larynx, as soon as this patient is medically stable, so we assume that they've gotten an emergent tracheostomy tube, they've been on the vent for several days, now they're awake in breathing, either on the vent or on a trach mask, then typically as soon as they're cleared medically, the surgeon says, okay, they're, they're cleared from our standpoint to initiate PO if you do your study and the pharynx and esophagus are intact and the, and the physiology is okay. And yeah, absolutely. The next, the biggest pressing issue for these patients is going to be their dysphagia. So yeah, I think we should do them all as soon as possible. Why not? I love it. I love it. (laughs) All right. I think I've got more, I've got more populations to go. 
Yeah, keep oh, going. My. All right, let's just let's just check your room. Okay. Yeah. So acquired brain injury. So these patients, I think every SLP in the world works with patients with acquired brain injury. So either stroke or traumatic brain injury. And these patients frequently also benefit from both video fluoroscopy and beads. And for video swallows, I like these studies for patients post severe TBI because a lot of these patients, we all see them initially in their either comatose or just emerging from a coma in a minimally conscious state. Then they'll move through kind of the, like the Rancho Los Amigos levels of cognitive functioning. And then they might get to that level four where they're very confused and agitated. And that's typically when I see like the late stages of level three, early level four is when I see my patients are actually awake enough to participate in a swallow study and they want to start eating by mouth. So it's really difficult when a patient's very combative and agitated to do a feast, right? But these patients are going to need a swallow study before they can start eating PO if they've had a massive brain injury. So I like video swallows for patients who are really agitated because, you know, to a certain extent, I mean, there's, there's always going to be a patient who's too agitated to even do a video swallow, but you can accommodate a wider range of agitation, I guess, in a fluoro suite than you can with a scope in someone's So that's one benefit. So you can do them video swallows maybe earlier for some of these patients than you could for fees and start oral nutrition earlier. Let's see. You can't, with video swallows though, you can't assess the secretion management. And patients with severe TBIs or acquired brain injuries frequently have impaired secretion management and aren't even able to swallow small, small drops of liquids. So I think that that's kind of why we might need to do fees for these people, but it might need to be a little bit later on when they're more calm, cooperative, will tolerate a scope. Yeah, and also one limitation of fees for these patients is if there's a traumatic brain injury, there might have been a blunt head or blunt facial trauma, and a lot of the patients I see have acute nasal fractures. So that can also make doing fees really challenging for these patients. Yeah. Yeah. Do you just do you just automatically forego it at that point, or do you attempt? So if there's an acute nasal fracture, we speak with the trauma surgeon, and we kind of ask their opinion, how stable it is, if they think it's safe. Sometimes they'll say, absolutely, do not attempt. Sometimes they'll say, go ahead and attempt with caution, and if there's absolutely any resistance, discontinue. So yeah. we kind of take it, you know, under the guidance of our surgeons. I have done it, you know, when they're like a subacute fracture and they feel that it's healing well. Um, yeah. But sometimes you'll peek in the nose and you'll say, absolutely, there's no way scopes going through here. So, yeah. Yeah. I'm sure you've also seen some noses well, yeah, you just yeah, couldn't I, get through. Yeah. Well, and, and on the flip side, I've heard of a lot of people say that like any previous, even like a, a nasal fracture from like 20 years ago, you can't even attempt to do it. I'm like, I don't think we can make those kind of blanket statements. Like, I'd always yeah. just ask the physician, you know, instead of just assuming they right. can't. Yeah. Right. Because so, mm-hmm. I had, it, it did happen. I had somebody that said like, oh, this patient had a nasal fracture like 20 years ago. There's no way we can do it. I was like, what? And so I asked the doctor and the doctor was like, yeah, same, same as what you said. Like, yeah, go for it. But if, you know, you hit resistance, then, then be careful. Stop. And it was like, it wasn't even an issue. I would have had no idea unless I dug that up in the chart. So. Yeah, exactly. I think, I mean, some of those contraindications that are 
you know, given by manufacturers, for example, might be a little too, too strict, maybe yeah. just to limit liability or who knows. I mean, always use your own professional judgment and consult with the physician. But I think that you, you can make a reasonable call on if it's safe or not safe, if it's actively bleeding. Right. Right. <laughs> would be my, my advice. Right. All right. Yeah. So acquired brain injury. I also vote for both video follow and feed by the awesome. same person. Yeah. Awesome. And then let's talk about tracheostomy and ventilator dependency, which is like my favorite. I mean, in this population, my whole feeling here is that we need to be getting in early. And if you think you're getting in early, like probably even earlier, like really, really while they're still on the ventilator during their first spontaneous awakening trial, I want to be there. So can you realistically get a patient with the ventilator, all of the equipment that they need down to radiology for fluoro? Probably not. So fees is kind of our best friend for doing early swallow evaluations for patients who are vent dependent via tracheostomy. So that's kind of why I prefer fees here. And then also simultaneously, I mean, it's hard to parse out like voice and swallow in this population. They're just so closely linked. So typically in these patients, at the same time we're evaluating their swallow function, we're evaluating their upper airway patency and their candidacy to use the one-way speaking valve. So if these patients are undergoing speaking valve trials, at the same time we're evaluating their swallow, doing fees can give us some really good information on the upper airway patency. Sometimes you get in and you'll say, oh my gosh, the larynx is completely swollen closed or the vocal folds are paralyzed in an adducted position. No wonder my patient's not tolerating their speaking valve. No wonder they don't have airway pain. So it gives us some really good information for both swallow and for voice. So I love that about doing fees for these patients. And it's easy to kind of conduct the swallow study in multiple conditions for a tracheostomy dependent patient. So you can start, you can do fees, go in scope, let's say with the cuff inflated on the vent, see how they do, might be miserable. Then you might wanna pull your scope out and then deflate the cuff, do some suctioning, put the speaking valve in line and then go in again and assess it that way. So I like how we can just kind of go back and forth between different cuff and speaking valve conditions. Um, for these patients. But that's not to say that like once a patient gets off the ventilator and doesn't have all that equipment and can transfer to radiology, you can also test multiple conditions in the fluoro suite. But it's just difficult because you have to be more mindful of the time, the radiation exposure. So if I've got a radiologist in the room and we do the whole study with the cuff inflated and I say, great, now we're going to do it again with the cuff down and the speaking valve, they're going to maybe get a little frustrated, right? So, and, you know, reasonably so, we have to be careful of the amount of radiation we're using for these really long studies. So that's kind of some considerations for these two studies. And then I've also, Teresa, tell me if you've seen this. I've seen an article out there um, talking about the severity rating of penetration and aspiration as judged by these versus video swallow. You know what I'm talking about? Yes. Yeah, so there's a little bit of evidence to say that FLPs in general might rate the 
severity of airway invasion more severely on fleas than they do on video swallow. And, you know, I don't think I'm immune to that. So, you know, I might do a fees for my patient and say, this patient had what seems to me to be a lot of airway invasion. We trialed this compensatory strategy, but I don't think that it was effective. But I might also want to take that patient for video swallow to try those strategies again and know, was that an accurate judgment I made? Was the strategies really not effective? Was that amount of airway invasion really as significant as I saw it to be on fees? Or is it actually more manageable when I can view it in the lateral projection on video swallow? And is that patient actually coughing it all out from the trachea? Sometimes it can be difficult to know if all of the contrast that's aspirated during fees is fully ejected from the airway. Yeah, okay. Completely. Well, and I think a lot of the confusion too is is like, yeah, I mean, how how deep is considered like is considered penetration or aspiration on fees? Like right. I've seen some that I might consider like flash aspiration, but then for somebody else, they may say it's gross aspiration. So I think that's where I get kind of annoyed with the reliability of fees because some people, it's kind of just like everything in our field, people get overly cautious. Like you might just see quick flash aspiration, the patient coughed it out or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, But then someone else may say, you know, oh, no, they aspirated NPO, you know? Right. Um, So so that yeah. that's something that I that I always find difficult when I'm trying to teach people how to do fees is like I mean you can't tell them what they're seeing you know obviously right. everybody sees differently but I do wish there was some I, I think more sort of standardized definitions which you know hopefully if we do get fees for MBSINP so I guess fees in um, mm-hmm. hopefully we would have more standardized definitions of where exactly is considered you know penetration aspiration right. as far as like flash gross you know all those quantitative characteristics. So, yeah. And then like in the the bird's eye view on fees, sometimes stuff is difficult to know how deep down, let's say like the surface of the epiglottis is penetration. Um, When it's kind of clearly seen in the lateral view, because our depth perception just might not be excellent in that view. Yeah, and then just seeing into like the deep dark hole that is the trachea on fees can like sometimes be like, did they get it all out? I think they got it all out, but I can't like do a full bronch and go in and right, see. Right. So yeah, so sometimes, you know, if I'm not sure what, you know, is it actually might this patient be able to handle this consistency? Was the strategy fully effective when they did that like cough after the swallow? Did it get everything out of the trachea? Um, then I might also take that down for fluoro. So that's kind of, you know, why I also, surprise, spoiler alert, vote for both fees and video solo for trach and vent patients. Awesome. Yeah. And I think I've got just one or two more populations to go, Teresa. So I wanted to talk about like progressive neurologic or neuromuscular conditions. So if we want to just talk about progressive neurologic or neuromuscular conditions, these patients, we know that their dysphagia is going to progress. We very frequently, even at the time of their initial diagnosis, need to let them know what to expect in terms of their swallow function and what to expect in terms of the diagnostics and treatment that they'll need to adequately manage their chronic dysphagia. So we need to let them know from the beginning, listen, your dysphagia might worsen we need to keep an eye on it and adjust your diet, adjust your therapy plan as necessary 
So we're going to schedule you for a swallow study every six months, every three months, every year, you know, depending on the progression of the disease and which disease it is. So obviously in patients, we're going to require frequent and repeated assessment of their swallowing. This is when there might be concerns over the radiation exposure. So we might not want to do every single study, a video swallow study. Sometimes we might want to alternate with these, but at the end of the day, you need to answer the clinical question. So if the clinical question is best answered by video fluoroscopy, then video fluoroscopy it is. But if the question could be answered relatively well by either study, then that could be something reasonable to do. And I love that video fluoroscopy for patients with progressive neurologic or neuromuscular disease offers a view of the esophagus because we know that esophageal function can frequently be impaired in this population. So it might, video fluoroscopy might be preferred as either the initial or a follow-up study for these patients. And then in terms of fees, I love also fees for these patients because we can get really good information on vocal fold function. So we know that vocal fold mobility might be impaired in patients with neurologic diseases. So I love that we can kind of get that information at the same time while we're doing our swallow study. And, you know, like we've spoken about earlier, all of the other benefits of these, just that um, it doesn't involve the radiation exposure, that there's less coordination with other disciplines. So someone who needs to come frequently for assessments might be difficult to get them in at the times that they need. So these might be a good option. And also for some patients with these disease processes, they're on certain drugs or medications that affect their swallow function, let's say like mestinon or carbidopa levodopa. So it can be really nice to just know exactly at what time did my patient receive their medication and at what time are we starting our exam. So you can give recommendations on timing meals after medication dosage, but you know, one little holdup in transport to radiology or a radiologist or rad tech being unavailable can completely mess up your timeline. So I like how with fees, we're kind of in control of the timing of it relative to their medication doses too. So, you know, both have their, their pros and cons for, for these populations. Can I ask you, Kelsey, do you like to see the patient before or after they take the levodopa? If they're admitted to acute care, generally we try to keep them on their regular medication schedule if possible. And I like to see them at their best. I know some there's an argument to do it both ways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I like to see them at their best. And I might start the study 30 minutes after their carbidopa levodopa. And if all looks good, then I would make that recommendation, time your meals at this time. Now, it kind of depends what the goal is, right? Like if I'm trying, if I know this patient has dysphagia and I'm trying to figure out how can I get this patient swallowing, then let me time it to do it at your best. But if what I've seen is that your, your swallow seems fine, I don't understand why you're having this recurrent pneumonia or, the, or malnutrition and you are having all these complications from a swallow that to me seems okay, then maybe I do want to challenge it and see it at its worst. So I think it like is what's the goal? Do you know that they have dysphagia and you're trying to find out the best way to help them? Or are you unsure that they have a significant dysphagia, but they're showing like complications from it and you need to challenge it and kind of see? So I don't know. What do you do? Yeah, no, I, I think that's, 
honestly, I don't usually get the liberty of choosing. Honestly, yeah. it's like whenever the <laughs> yeah 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 save the dose. Yeah, I mean, we we always I, we make a conscious effort to time it up because I obviously would like to see them at their best. But then sometimes mm-hmm. it's by the time we get it to them, they're you know a half an hour from their next dose, and we can't wait. And you know, right. So I think ju- it's just important to document those things. That, to document, yeah, yeah, the time that you did it. But yeah. I love that you know, fees gives us a little bit more control over that than does like okay, now rush them to radiology, yeah. like run through the halls and get them there. So. Yeah. So also, no surprise, I think we should be doing both studies for these patients. Fantastic. And then the last the last population, I guess, really isn't a population, but it's those patients who have dysphagia of completely unknown etiology. So we just say, you have signs of dysphagia or you're reporting dysphagia. We have no idea right now what the cause is. These patients, in my opinion, definitely need both exams. Yeah, I think that we the clinical question at that point is everything. So yeah. we need all of the possible information we can get. And then we need to make referrals to other specialists once we get all of the information we can possibly gather. So that concludes my special population. So if you so say you do fees, just top of my head, say you do a fees and you find nothing. Do then do then you go right to a video swallow or do you go to ENT, GI? Kind of, what's your thought process with kind of the referrals of like, I didn't see what I need to see on here. What's next? Right. So I think it depends on like the patient's clinical symptoms. But so I, re- I had a similar case just yesterday. So I had a gentleman who said that he's been having progressive difficulty swallowing to both liquids and solids, but solids feel worse than liquids. He says he feels like food and liquids get stuck and he points to like the sternal notch right here, just where everyone says their food and liquid gets stuck. He was doing some throat clearing, right? And then, so we did a fees. Oh, and he had a little bit of a hoarse vocal quality and a smoking history. So I was wondering, is there a laryngeal pathology that's brewing here? And I did a fees, which was completely normal. No signs at all of dysfunction. And then I said, you know what? I think your your symptoms could be reasonably explained by a purely esophageal dysphagia. So then I referred that patient to GI who did both a barium esophagram and an EGD. So I think at that point, you can say, you know what? There's no concern at all anywhere in the pharynx. We can just refer you to GI versus like a patient who shows some signs of, you know, mild or moderate dysfunction on fees, but it doesn't seem to fully explain the whole clinical picture, then I might also want a video swallow study. So I know that there's oropharyngeal involvement, that I'm in the right place, that this patient doesn't need to go just to GI, but that, you know, there's more information I can gather. It doesn't account for all of the patient's symptoms. So that's when I, I like to use both. Awesome. I love it. All right. So we get through everybody? We did. I think, yeah, I think we did. All right. Do you have any final thoughts? So I think that, you know, just in summary, we need to consider what is the clinical question we're trying to answer regarding our patient's swallow physiology? Which test would be best suited to answer that question? And then not stop ourselves just at one exam. 
So to realize just because you've done one exam might not mean you've done a full comprehensive evaluation to the best of your ability that you could offer this patient. So recognizing that our field still has a long way to go in identifying patients who require both video swallow and feed, and then to making those recommendations and explaining to other professionals why a patient really needs both. Okay, so I kind of want to circle back around to in the beginning, we were talking about, okay, so I just was able to advocate to for fees, you know, to my supervisor, and now you're telling me I need both exams. I guess what kind of words of wisdom or what advice would you give to, yeah, to, to be advocating for both, both tests? Right, well, I mean, my first thought is like a stroke patient. If a stroke patient comes in and they get a CT of their head, that's unremarkable, but they still have stroke symptoms. Does that patient also get an MRI? Absolutely, yeah. right? So you're telling me there are other areas in medicine where a patient needs multiple exams of the same body part to you know, answer the clinical question. It's our recommendations. We, we understand the physiology of swallowing. We can say with pretty good confidence which test might be more appropriate for which patient and if a patient needs both exams. And that should be our judgment. That should be the judgment of a skilled professional who's trained in this area, not a judgment of administrators. I would compare it to other areas of medicine where they use multiple exams like CT and MRI and say, would you ever ask a neurologist to choose between access to these two exams? Absolutely not. So don't make me choose between these Awesome. I love it. Thanks, Kelsey. So if you would love to hear more of these episodes and get some easily digestible bites of swallowing knowledge, then please leave a review on iTunes or pledge a small amount on patreon.com forward slash swallow your pride because that is what keeps these episodes coming. Also, don't forget to subscribe, share with your closest colleagues, and show notes will always be available to download over on swallowyourpridepodcast.com, where you can also be notified of the latest podcast episodes. Also, credit to Stephanie Jacobson for her incredible editing skills, and thank you so much to all of you for listening.